0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means when we read it, we are hearing God speak to us. Our passage this morning is from Titus chapter 3, from verses 1 to 15. I'll be reading from the CSB version, and I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey to to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another." but when the kindness of god our savior and his love for mankind appeared he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the holy spirit he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through jesus christ our savior so that having been justified by his grace we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing." Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you.
1: Gracious God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your words written for us about your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. There are not many things that gets me excited in life. Uh, for those of you who know me, you wouldn't be surprised that I get excited when I play a basketball or when I go fishing. But what many of you might not know is, I used to get excited about gardening. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't mowing the lawn or planting the pretty flowers that got me excited. What got me excited was fruit trees, because I love fruits. Uh, My first ever fruit tree was an apricot tree. Uh, I was about knee high when I first got it. Uh, Over the years, it grew taller than me. It was a healthy looking tree because it had strong roots and vibrant leaves. But there was just one thing wrong about my apricot tree it didn't produce a single apricot. It was unfruitful. In Titus 1, we saw that a healthy church is a godly church. It doesn't just know the gospel, it lives out the gospel. Then last week in Titus 2, we saw that a healthy church is a beautiful church. It's a picture of godly living between the one knowledge of church. Titus 2 is about you and me. In Titus 3, Paul now shifts the focus from inside the church to outside the church. It's about us and the world. And we're going to see that a healthy church, it's a fruitful church. But what does a fruitful church look like? It doesn't look like my apricot tree, which didn't bear any fruit at all. No, a fruitful church bears the fruit of good works in this world. Not apricots, apples, or avocados, but fruits of gentleness, kindness, and of good works. Uh, if you had to choose one word that should mark our conduct with the world, what would it be? Bold, unashamed, holy. They're all good words, but the one word offered by Paul in verses 1 to 2 is gentle. Look with me. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind. And here it is. Always showing gentleness to all people. Gentleness should be the mark of every Christian in the world. In these verses, Paul calls Titus to remind the Credence, be ready for every good work. And he shows us how to be gentle to two groups of people in this world. Firstly, to the rulers and authorities. Paul calls us to do good by humbly submitting to them. This doesn't mean total, total submission. In Daniel 3, the prophet Daniel disobeys the king's orders out of his greater obedience towards God. In the same way, our obedience to our rulers and authorities doesn't override our obedience to God. Rather, we submit to them out of our submission to God. I think as Christians, particularly in Melbourne, uh, submission is not the natural posture many of us have towards authority. Uh, Either we're apathetic, uh, we don't care, or we have an innate resistance towards them. It sounds silly, but I find it really hard to submit uh, to the referees in my basketball league. They're just not very good at officiating the game, plus they have an attitude. Maybe for you, it's uh, your boss at work, the one who cares for no one else except themselves. Or maybe for you, it's the government, Dan Andrews. I once heard that someone from another church was willing to sacrifice themselves to take him out during the lockdown period. But Paul calls us to... Obedience and humble submission. Make it a joy for them to lead us. Secondly, Paul addresses our conduct with everyone else. Slander no one, avoid fighting, and be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Notice how our conduct isn't just reserved for our colleagues, friends, or the people we like. It's not only reserved for only other Christians. Now, Paul calls us to do good works for all people. No matter how hateful, hurtful, and repulsive someone may be, God calls us to embody the gospel to them. The key posture that should mark our conduct with all people is gentleness. So let me ask, how do you behave in public, at work, or on campus? How do you hold yourself in front of your non-Christian friends? Are you avoiding fighting or always fighting? Are you kind or are you cruel? Are you always displaying gentleness or harshness? Let me sharpen my questions. What might your supervisor say about your behavior? What might your colleagues say about your conduct? Or if you're senior enough, what might your direct report say about your actions? What might your students say about how you teach? Paul says the word that should characterize our conduct is gentleness. But if I'm honest with myself, and maybe you're in the same boat as me, gentleness is probably not the first virtue we think should mark our conduct as Christians. And When I think of a gentle person, I often think of a quiet and passive demeanor that often goes unnoticed. It's who you describe as the Mr. Nice Guy, uh, the second lead in every TV series or K-drama, uh, the one who never gets a girl, or you might describe a gentle person as a pushover or someone that's naive. Gentleness just seems so lackluster and ineffective. You no know, you need to be assertive, ambitious, and confident. Paul could have almost substituted in any other virtue and it sound better. He could have said, always showing honor, generosity, respect to all people. And in one sense, yes, we should be showing all these things to all people, but Paul calls us to specifically show gentleness because there's something distinct about it. Contrary to what we might assume it to be, Gentleness is not reactive, it's proactive. It's not shy, it's inviting. It's not unnoticeable, it's winsome. Uh, not long ago, the book Gentle and Lily came out, and it's a book that everyone was like, you must get this book. And if you don't have the book, you should get it. Uh, but I suspect why, uh, there's a reason why it's so popular. Because when you read the book, it felt like you were being given a big, warm hug. Because that book, it points us to Jesus. If you want a true picture of gentleness, look at him. In the book, Dane Otlin writes, Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Isn't that beautiful? But don't take it from Dane, take it from Jesus himself. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Uh, So often than not, I think the world's view of Jesus is the opposite of gentle because the church isn't gentle. Uh, Rather than being gentle, we can be harsh, prideful, and condescending. We so easily think that we are better than the world. No, a healthy church needs to produce the fruit of gentleness because Jesus himself is gentle. If gentleness is the mark of every Christian, then kindness needs to be the heart of every Christian. In verses 3 to 7, Paul gives the indicative for the imperative, the the why to the what. Three times in verses 1, 8, and 14, Paul says, devote yourself good works. But at the heart of this passage, Paul wants us to understand the heart behind our hands. Paul wants our hearts to be gripped by the kindness of God. Kindness needs to sit at the heart of every Christian. And we see God's kindness most clearly against the backdrop of our past, don't we? Verse 3. For we too were once foolish Disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. And Notice the emphasis, we too were once like the world. The gospel levels the playing field. Who are we to look down on others when we ourselves were once like them? Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous not even one. There's nothing inherently good in us to earn our salvation. But that all changed when God's kindness was shown through his love for the world. Verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according To his mercy. As Christians, we can so easily think that we're better than the world, can't we? We act like our good works, our righteous acts, makes us better than uh, everyone else. And we're like that kid in the high school who drives their parents' car uh, to school. Uh, They think they're cooler and better than everyone else, but they're not. Without their parents, they're just like the rest of us. Paul shows us that we're just like the kid in high school, without God, we're just like everyone else. It's not our good works that makes us good, but it's all because of God's mercy. Salvation lies entirely in God's sovereign mercy. God spared us from what we deserve and gives us what we don't. He gives us his son, Jesus, and makes us new through his Holy Spirit. Verses 5 to 7. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. It's like standing under a waterfall. You can feel the abundance of Christ's Spirit being poured out upon us. And from this washing, we've been made clean and new. We've been born again. We're no longer what we once were. We have a life that's altogether new. Friends, no good works we've done. Our doing or will do will ever save us. Paul shows us so clearly that the only one person involved in our salvation is God and God alone. It's the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Our good works don't save us. We're saved because of God's kindness. Our best efforts don't purify us. We're purified by the cleansing and sanctifying work of the Spirit. And our performance doesn't gain us membership into God's people. We're welcome into God's family through our union with Jesus. God's love for the world His love of strangers forms the foundation for our love for the world. We do good works in this world not because we are good, but because God is good. It is this gospel indicative that drives our obedience to good works. Can you see Paul's logic? Show gentleness to all people because you were once like them. But because God was so kind to you, he saved us even when we don't deserve a shred of it. He washed away our past and gave us new life. A new life where we have become heirs of eternal life, a child of God. If God is so kind to us, how can we not be kind to a needy world? The church must bear the fruits of kindness, to the world. It's on this foundation of truth that Paul once again calls us to good works in the world. If gentleness is the mark of every Christian and kindness the heart of every Christian, then Paul finally shows us that good works must be the priority of every Christian. A healthy and fruitful church must bear the fruit of good works. Paul commands Titus in verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice how Paul doesn't just call us to do good works. He calls us to devote ourselves to good works. Good work isn't just our job as Christians. It's not our occupation. It's our preoccupation. It's like having your first kid. Uh, Just look at Israel and MJ or Ben and Grace. Edo and Elias are always on their mind. They're constantly thinking about how to raise and care for them. It's also a bit like being a video game player. The boys to my right will know what that feels like. When you find a game you love, you can't just stop thinking about the game. You just want to keep playing it. In the same way, Paul wants us to be constantly on about good works in the world. He wants us to devote ourselves to it because, verse 8, They're good and profitable for everyone. Good works aren't just profitable for me, uh, for you, or for the church. No, good works are good and profitable for everyone. Now, you might be wondering, if good works are so uh, profitable, how do I know that I'm doing good? What makes a good work good? Uh, When we think about that word, work, we often think about our jobs, don't we? What we do for a living. And we let our profession define our our value and worth. Uh, If we're doctors, uh, we think we're doing good because we heal and save lives. If we're teachers, we think we're doing good because we're raising up uh, the next generation. If we're a student, we think we're doing good because we apply what we learn. And yes, those are all good works in a general sense. But what makes our good work good distinctly as Christians? It's the heart of God's kindness. Our good works aren't good because of the good outcome. Our good works aren't good because we're somehow good, our people, good ourselves. No, our good works are good because we worship a God who is good. It's the kindness of Jesus, our Savior, shown through our works. That's what makes our good works good. So we can plant a tree, heal the sick, and give money to the poor. But if it's not out of the kindness of God's heart, it's futile. Because on our own accord, we have nothing good to offer this world. Jesus is the ultimate good we can offer because in him, the world can find salvation. In him, the world can be made new, justified by his grace. In him, the world can be heirs to the hope of eternal life. Uh, If you're someone who uh, doesn't follow Jesus, I hope you can see that the church is not good because of what we do. In fact, you might have heard or experienced things that might show otherwise. But I hope that you see the only goodness and hope for this world is found in Jesus. And he invites you to share in his goodness. Friends, as a church, we, might, we must devote ourselves to good works because the world needs Jesus. And one of the biggest obstacles for the church in devoting ourselves to good work is us. In verses 9 to 11, Paul cautions the church in Crete to avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law. Rather than producing good works, they're producing worthless works. Rather than profiting the world, they're robbing the world of God's goodness. Church, let's not be uh, divided over what's unprofitable and worthless. Let's not be divided about what songs to sing, Internal church, church politics or conflict with one another. Because the person who divides God's household has no place in that household. Let's keep our eyes off ourselves and fix on Jesus and his kindness and love for the world. Let's produce healthy fruits of good works, and not produce sour, rotten, or distasteful fruits of division, conflict, and sin. Let's model the kind of good works that we find in verses 12 to 15. Good works for pressing needs. Verse 12 When I send Artemis or to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenas the lawyer and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. What are those pressing needs? Paul knows that the pressing need has always been, and will always be, to see the gospel go forth into the world. Friends, every morning, every day, what are you doing? Are you devoting yourself to good works, to see people become and grow as disciples of Jesus in an ever-increasing number? Uh, Two years ago, I was uh, in a training program ran by Gary Miller, the principal of Queensland Theological College. And one thing that stood out to me was the fact that every morning, when he wakes up, he tells himself, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You see, for Gary, Christ is the only good he has and the only reason he can do any good at all. Friends, Christ is the only good we have and the only good we can offer the world. Paul calls us to bear the fruits of good works so that people might come to see, eat, and taste the goodness of Jesus and the hope of the eternal life to come. Uh, Two weeks ago, we began with the question, what does a healthy church look like? Throughout the book of Titus, Paul shown us a vision of a healthy church. And in that vision, a healthy church is a godly church. It's a church where godliness is the goal and it begins with godly leaders. A healthy church is a beautiful church. It's a picture of godly living between one another, where the beauty of the gospel. It's displayed in the church. A healthy church is a fruitful church. It's a church that bears the fruit of good works in this world, fruits of gentleness and kindness. Is this vision of a healthy church in Titus one that we can see here at Crossing Crown? Yes. Yes, and even more, because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. So may we continue to learn to devote ourselves to good works, both in and outside of the church, so that we will not be unfruitful. Let's pray. Our gracious God, make us in churches all around the world to be healthy churches, Churches that not just know the gospel, but loves and lives it out. Help us be churches that are devoted to good works for pressing needs. Churches that bear the goodness of the gospel to the world. For all we have is Christ, our God and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.